the subject for the evening talk is mudita, that's M-U-D-I-T-A, and it's a Pali word which covers a range of heartfelt meanings, including joy, including appreciation, gratitude, and that gratitude and appreciation in life, which include totality, meaning both towards others, towards aspects and areas of life, and towards oneself as well. And it's one of the, the themes, the, the pillars of being in the world and participating in the world to acknowledge and recognize the, the value of mudita, joy, gratitude, appreciation. Just about this time last, last year, I paid my first visit to Thailand for 12 years and since the time when I had been there as a monk and had disrobed. And I went to visit uh, Ajahn Damodaro, who was my meditation teacher, Vipassana teacher. And I spent a few days with him and the monks and nuns at his monastery in Supambari. And I remembered while being there and spending some time, a story that he had told me. And he had told me that years before, when he was a, a younger man, and he'd spent several years in intensive meditation practice, and in, including over, apart from a short break, a three-year period in, in solitude in the central plains of Thailand. And he told me during this period of time of just living in this very small room and in this area which he once took me to when I was a monk, he said he'd lie down at night and have his head on the pillow before taking rest after the day. And he said tears would come into his eyes and soak his pillow at the thoughts about the Buddha and the sacrifices that the Buddha had made in his personal life along the road to awakening and how touched he was and how privileged he felt, Ajahn Damaro felt, to be still engaged in that process of inquiry for realization two and a half thousand years later. And I remember listening to him recount this and speaking of, of his tears and the pillow soaking. And listen, and I remember, what I always remember is that at the time I couldn't relate to it. And it just, just didn't strike, strike me at all. And I thought, well, maybe there's not much mudita inside here and he feels this, or perhaps it's because he was brought up into a Buddhist family, Buddhist 
country. He's got all of that association and familiarity, and I'm just, you know, Joe Bloggs, Westerner, being here. About a year later, and when I, um, after I remember him telling me the story, this is in the early 70s, I remember just one day engaged in the walking meditation and just walking slowly up and down and a phrase of the Buddha came to mind and, the fr and he said, he said, I do this work, he said as a teacher, as a Dharma teacher, the Buddha said, I do this work because there is suffering in this world and there is the end of suffering in this world. And that's why I do this work. And I was just doing my walking meditation and I remember the tears coming out of my uh, eyes and running down onto the, onto the robe as I just continued doing this walking meditation. And that spirit, that feeling, that heart feeling that arises at times, quite spontaneously and quite unexpectedly, when something touches us and we experience this feeling of appreciation, of gratitude, of this mudita coming. So sometimes it may come in reference to a particular place or person, long time ago, or whatever. And I think that what tends to happen is that at times, out of this mudita, out of this gratitude and appreciation, a person or people or group of people want to give some kind of form to that. They want to make it visible in some way or other. And so one of the concerns that I have, may not be for others, but I have personally, is that what can happen is that too much religious art begins to make manifest. Too many religious statues, chanting, rituals, ceremonies, appreciations of the past, a particular book or whatever. So sometimes it seems to me the original inspiration for it to express outwardly this mudita does take form, it does show itself, but what I think what can happen for some people is that the appreciation can just be to the past. The gratitude is to what's gone by. The gratitude is to the old, to the tradition, to the, to the founder, to the original spirit, to the lineage, to the stream of teachers, or whatever. And so sometimes when that occurs, we come into situations, what we get as be, is basically reminders of the old. And I sometimes feel concerned about that because I think that it's, if we can be touched, the experience of appreciation and gratitude can in some way be connected to the living present as well and be made manifest. I'll give you um, an, um, an example of, of this. I was just, um, before coming in here, I was just w walking in the uh, di dining room and 
I remember a friend of the center. She had been to uh, Russia, and in fact has been two or three times, and she had taken a number of photographs of Russians, adults, and particularly children. And she had them framed, and in the dining hall, we put them on the wall. And there was about, must be 20 or, or 30 of them during a weekend retreat. And I remember the impact on myself, the delight of just walking through the dining hall, sometimes stopping to notice, sometimes just noticing, but seeing the, the smiling kids in the, in the playground, the old people sitting in the park, a street in Leningrad and, and Moscow, and feeling, as others reported as well, a real sense of empathy and, and closeness with that living humanity in, a, in another part of the world. And I think, to me, that kind of reminder, with the living present, I think there's a whole new field of meditative awarenesses and, and exploration of this mudita to be found in daily life situations to find, express itself. And I got a further reminder of this, some of you will know, of this quite remarkable uh, man, and some of you will have read uh, his books and perhaps have seen some of the recent um, documentaries of interviews made with him, Joseph Campbell. And I was told at one of the uh, lunches uh, during the week that he was asked in a series of interviews what will be, what does he think will be the new myths of the world? And remember in, in the world, myths in human, I think, in human psyche are very, very powerful. Very, very powerful. For example, there may be the God as some supreme being up there, which is commonly believed, may be a complete myth. It may, there may not be any truth in that whatsoever. There may be no creator of the world as many people believe. And in that belief, or in that possible myth, it, yet nevertheless the human psyche, the heart, the love, the way of being in the world can be manifestly affected by the idea. In, in, in all sorts of ways. And this man who uh, was interviewed, Joseph uh, Campbell, was asked, what, what will be, what does he think will be the new myth that would be important? And his thought was that the new myth will, will be around global consciousness, global awareness. And that consciousness, I'm now taking it for myself now, speaking, consciousness and consciousness and the world will need all sorts of myths, all sorts of fresh explorations to find ways that we can communicate this togetherness, this de mutual dependency, this mutual support system. And I think it's going to take a tremendous amount of art and creativity and imagination and exploration and investigation 
to get this over so that this appreciation in life, gratitude in life, connectedness in life, this mudita begins to make itself manifest in our world. Sometimes the myth or the beliefs with the myth, of course, can be very, very dangerous. Very, very dangerous. And we've seen what history has done with myths as, as, as well. And in that, looking at our beliefs, seeing what that means for us and what, what the effect of the beliefs or the myths are. For example, while we have been sitting here this week and spending these days together, there's this uh, book which was published in Britain and in the US and elsewhere um, just a few months ago by the uh, Indian-born author Salman Rushdie. And he has written a book and it is claimed by very severely orthodox Muslims that this particular book is, that he's written, is a portrayal <coughs> It's a, uh, this fiction book is a, is a devastating negative portrayal of Mohammed and his life. It has brought a furor amongst the very orthodox Muslims to such a degree that Khomeini has ordered that Salman Rushdie be, a, be killed for what he's written. And he, Salman Rushdie, was due here within a few days in the States to give talks, public lectures, a lecture tour and so forth, and has had to go into hiding because there has been death squads sent out to find him. So we see in this world that we live in, in the world of myth and holding and cherishing and the tragedy of identification and clinging and holding that anything remotely different or opposite becomes threatening and therefore must be destroyed. When we're looking at mudita, when we're looking at spiritual joy in life, as I say, I think we need to explore ways and means to help facilitate that connection, that kind of expression of, of joy in the world. Sometimes people tell me, and regularly on the retreats and elsewhere, that just sometimes the very small, what, some, what one of the English poets called tremendous trifles of life, actually touch one quite deeply. A very small gesture occurs in the world, in the nature of things, which seems to cut through our our thought world, our ideas, our beliefs, our myths, or whatever it might be, and sometimes reach us quite spontaneously. And part of the purpose of meditative processes and living a life, as the Buddhist was once asked, why do we live this life? And he said, because when we understand this way of living in the world, it is the most joyful way of living in the world. So sometimes we in a, there's a receptivity which we barely know where a small event just touches. It goes right to the heart, you might say the very core of our being. And those moments in life, we can't 
organise our mind to have them. We can't say, well, I'll, I'll do a bit of breathing first and I'll settle in and then when that leaf falls off the tree, I'll move my head and ah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so though we may spend an inordinate, I think it's sometimes an inordinate amount of time organising our life and trying to get it right, we might be missing mudita. We might be missing appreciation, connectedness, being touched, because we're spending too much time thinking too much in terms of past, present and future. And life just keeps unfolding and we keep thinking and sometimes it seems never the twain shall meet. So, then there's other aspects too of mudita. Today I had a meeting with the, the staff, the, th the three of us, uh, Eric, Henrietta and I and the staff, and we had a meeting for about an, an hour together, one of a number of small group meetings, somewhat similar in form as the other group meetings. And in that meeting I mentioned and spoke a little bit about mudita. And, and I want to touch upon a little bit about some of the aspects of it, the importance of it, in our everyday living situation. The, the place, as Eric said earlier today in one group, of importance of heartfulness. And what I mean by that is, in any arrangement of human beings that you and I participate in, and we do from time to time, there's going to be a whole range of different influences. It couldn't be human if you didn't have that. You know, we're not zombies yet. <laughs> and <laughs> therefore there has to be diversity. If there's a diversity of views and opinions, there's diversity of strength about them, there's diversity of influences, there's going to be diversity of power. And that varies considerably. One of the things which concerns me in this world that we live in is that sometimes people who speak loudest and longest seem often to have too much influence. And one sees, one sees this in all sorts of all sorts of ways. And, and with that, it means that people who speak less often, easily, in group situations, in all sorts, tend to get ignored. And I think there's a lot of exploration in listening to be done, which means listening and tuning in to the silence, the non-speaking of somebody, and seeing and picking up whether or not a voice needs to be heard and letting that voice be heard. And in that, in that kind of listening which the voices can be heard, in that it helps to, as a possible small contribution in life to finding some degree of harmony and well-being. Therefore, mudita, joy and appreciation can come through voices being heard. 
And when they're not, what happens is a small number of people, very easily, people like me who rabid on morning, noon and night, very easily can dominate a meeting, not through intention, but by sheer volume of words. <laughs> and another person who is listening and not saying, in any, saying anything can end up, oh, either he knows, she knows, or feeling resentful that one hasn't said anything because someone else has dominated and the whole meeting. This makes the gaps. It makes the differences in control, differences in power, it makes unevenness, it makes, a, in a way, a kind of unfairness. And sometimes the outcome of this is what, is, is what Buddha said is this, he said, sometimes he said it's called arati, this is A-R-A-T-I. And what that means is, it leaves for the person the feeling of being resentful, or envious, or, or bored, or disconnected, those kind of feelings when a person has felt, I haven't participated fully in this, whatever it is. And so the counter to that is this mudita. When people have an opportunity to share, have an opportunity to speak, and there is appreciation that that's been made available. And that's why I say, I think for Mudita to be present, we need a lot of listening to do. In your text, as I'm quoting Buddha far more liberally than I normally would, it says in one of the passages, in a meeting and coming together, he says, in the meeting, one begins the meeting with Moments of peace, as he says at the beginning of the meeting. He says, when the meeting is finished, moments of peace or togetherness or this mudita at the end, end of the meeting, appreciation, connectedness at the end of the meeting. He doesn't say anything about what goes on in the middle. So sometimes in meetings in life, there's the need for a person or people to really have the opportunity to express what they're feeling, what they're seeing, what they're viewing, what they're going through, etc., etc. And sometimes one can know that even if a person's being very hostile and very angry and feeling very upset, and if it's, even if it's directed towards oneself, sometimes in our awareness and in our listening, in, in which there isn't taking of it personally, just that listening which is going on, one can feel joy at the person's courage to say what they're experiencing. Even sometimes when it gets self-directed, it's as though we can reach or be beyond our self-consideration at times and just recognize somebody's willing to put it straight out there. And when we don't defend, when we don't attack back, which is often the immediate mechanism, 
we can then sometimes hear and sometimes experience joy at, with the honesty, the truthfulness, the willingness to, for a person to go out on the limb a bit. <coughs> with Mudita, this spiritual uh, um, uh, joy in life, it seems that what contributes to this and our being in, in the world is a certain kind of receptivity of being. What's going to contribute to our receptivity in this world? What is it that hardens us? And I think when one, say, comes to a meeting and is involved in a meeting which has been difficult and conflicting and so forth, what happens after the meeting inside of oneself, I think, is vitally important. The tendency is, after a meeting where there's been some difficulty, that following on after it, one finds oneself reliving the situation, a scenario replaying with monotonous video-like rep repetition, and we start carrying it around with us. And when it's been painful, the resentment factor then goes generated towards that person, group, meeting. Can we, when we ex finish a meeting, find somewhere inside of us that it somehow there is a finishing and a certain kind of completion in that? Living, travelling very lightly so that we move out of that and we then view the situation with a certain spaciousness. And one of the things which I've noticed in myself, in order for joy and mudita to be alive and in our world, is that sometimes I have, say, a very intense conversation. Somebody comes to me and says, Christopher, you... You know, I can rationalize it morning, noon, and night and say, well, it's obvious I'm just a father figure for this person, blah, 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 etc. Use all these reasons to, you know, protect the uh, person's uh, output. And in that, somebody is spelling it out really rough, heavy. They've really, I can give you a very, very good example of this. Just um, about a year ago, I was giving a retreat in um, um, where were we? in India, and a person came, and he was uh, an Israeli tank commander <laughs> who had been in the Lebanon, and it had been incredibly painful and traumatic. I mean, in in, in Incredibly, and I, in recent uh, years, quite regularly in uh, in, in India, India and um, in England, people coming from uh, Israel to uh, be in retreats, and I must, you know, I, and this is a slightly side point here. I must say, just from my experiencing, really express my concern about what is happening. To Israel, to Israel with its situation. I, 
the stories that I hear and the pain and the despair and the conflict and the violence and fear it is something which um, I, don't I don't hear or feel or pick up um, elsewhere particularly for I think Israelis particularly for young Israelis who are being terribly psychologically and emotionally damaged by, by, by the wars, by the threats um, with, with the guilt with regard to the Palestinians etc etc very very painful situation and this Israeli tank Amman came and I could see the moment he sat down he was so angry with me and the anger absolutely blew up in, in, in um, enormous rage being uh, generated at me and shouting and beating the, the floor etc 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 taking place and he said I was leading the retreat totally irresponsibly I should never uh, be in he said, command of a retreat, etc., etc. <laughs> so this went on for quite some, in such close proximity, you know, it, it, the, the force of it, you know, on one's body, let alone one's heart and feelings, really uh, jars very, very, very strongly. And I noticed after and the, uh, the next day after this, that at the feeling level inside myself, the feeling level there was to avoid, to keep away from, and feeling of um, discomfort in the feeling, feeling world because of this, uh, what took place. And I remember, and I don't want to use this as um, boasting or anything like that, but I remember that you know, inside, um, you know, like a voice, a sense said to, said to me, inside, do I follow up with the feeling, and the feeling was unpleasant and to keep away from, or do I not buy into the feeling reaction and try to view it just from a standpoint of awareness? Can I make some shift in the inwardly in the situation? It's not just living out of the feeling factor in those moments. Without suppressing the feeling, without denying, without pushing it down. And I think sometimes in situations like that, if we can just tune into ourselves and not deny what we're feeling, but not make it the measurement. Not something easy, I know, for, for us to do. And sometimes when we not buy into that, some kind of other communication can take place where there's a kind of flow inside of us of understanding, of appreciation, of recognition, which comes spontaneously because we've just taken a moment or two afterwards just to stop, just to step back from the situation and see whether we have to go on the typical response that we might have. Some situations that we find ourselves with, with our awarenesses and the, 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 the heart factor, one of the things which I think one needs to be aware of in that respect, that as the organism refines itself, 
diet and exercise and posture and mindfulness and being in, in the world, the world can touch us more noticeably than when we're hard. When we start listening to the softer voice inside of us instead of the harder voice, all of that does bring a, something of a change in our relationship because we're listening to the softer rather than to the harder. The willingness to do that means that one needs to find a balance between the assimilation and dealing with pain in life, tense situations, and that which is not painful. To be aware of the pains of life, people's pains, working with people's pains, dealing with people's pains, as well as our own, and being aware of what is not painful. Sometimes, for example, we get very, on a personal level, we get very much embroiled in the body. And we get embroiled in one part of the body. We begin forming conclusions. This pain is so much it will stop me from. And we get completely wrapped up in that. And all the views, opinions and feeding and resentment, that all can go feeding into that. And we may be forgetful and we may not appreciate, we may not experience the mudita for the rest of the body, which is not in pain. In a rather similar way, when we're dealing with the world of people, sometimes we're having to deal with people's pain and face people's pain. And when that person leaves the room, leaves the situation, are our eyes and our ears wide enough open to know the world which doesn't experience, isn't being experienced as painful? To me, this is a very essential and vital balance. When I was, if I may say a personal story again, when I first began doing this kind of work, people would come in for the one-to-one -one meetings and one hears a great deal about people's inner world. It gives one great privilege, as many of you know, you're in, this, in working in these fields. And what I used to do was, after a meeting with somebody, before the next person would come in, I would just listen. When the person left, just have two or three minutes of not seeing the next person, just know the world which is not of pain see the plants in the room, appreciate the light of the day, just feel how the body was feeling in that particular moment, just letting that world be, be familiar. And I found then, one person leave, another person come in and could respond, hopefully, without this carrying. And I think we need to find those moments in our day. And if someone says to me, oh, I'm too busy, I haven't got any time for that, then I don't think the job's worth it. I don't think a job is worth it if it's perennial busyness, tension, stress, and no joy. I don't think it's just worth doing if, one, if it's like that. So this, not that joy can be here every moment of the day and one walks into the office blissed out and... <laughs> And walks, and walks out of it blissed out. This is 
too high in expectations. <laughs> but keeping in touch with our being and with ourself in what we do is such that if it's painful work to know non-pain, to know the moments when there isn't what our world constitutes. And when there is joy and appreciation, I think making itself made manifest in the world is a beautiful thing to tell the world. Just as we did with the go-around today. I'm rather... So I introduced go-rounds at IMS. It's about the only thing I ever did which was useful. And we had... And in that go-around, go one doesn't put on the notice board, go-around, um, appreciation to staff and teachers, please. It just comes quite naturally, quite spontaneously, and just as we express our appreciation to you as well. So all those communications that were said verbally, physically, quietly, there, each one of those is this mudita being made manifest in the world. And I, I think sometimes in you know, religious life or whatever, it can all get a bit, like in Buddhist world, a bit too much of the old dukkha. You know, heard this word dukkha. It means suffering and satisfactoriness. You can hear a bit too much about dukkha, 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 dukkha. <laughs> you, know, you know, and, you know, and signatures to rename it Unpleasant Street and all sorts of things. <laughs> <laughs> and this... And I think sometimes we can miss, enormous, miss enor enormously all the other things in this kind of work, with all the challenge that it brings us, in which this mudita is said. And I, I think one of the nice things which one hears more, more, more in uh, America is that people are often more willing to express appreciation and gratitude and kindness and give more verbalized acknowledgement to, to people, to friends and, and others. And just putting out, you know, how a person appears today, how they look in the day, an act of kindness which the person done, a gesture of thoughtfulness. These things are well in the culture here, very nice. You know, you, when you go to other places, it's uh, often not like that, Britain, it's stiff upper lip mentality and things. So, that sort of, those outpourings of communications and putting those things out in the world, I think are very, very important in the world. And in a way, that's the mudita at work. It's affirming people. In not building them up, but affirming. And I think we, the power of consciousness is that we can give that even when we don't necessarily agree with much else person may be like this and may be like that, etc., which we feel very uncomfortable with. But if we've got a, a more full awareness, we'll know what we appreciate. They will see the value of this human being in some area. Can we touch upon that? Can we find, it, can we find each other that? And what I notice in that with people if we can find and touch the place of connectedness and trust with a person, and they feel trusted, you, you, you feel joy for them being who they are. When we, and when we can feel that trust and that connect that, if we wish to give criticism, if we wish to give feedback, 
if we wish to be honest and truthful, it can be heard because the primary thing is the trust is there because one's made it obvious. But we can't expect each other to hear each other in feedback if we're putting down this person, if we're backbiting, if we're gossiping, if we're undermining this person, if we're ignoring and attacking this person. Whatever we say, that person won't be able to hear any of that because the person doesn't feel trusted. Doesn't person feels that they're not accepted. So on these connect lines of connection with each other, on the flow of this spiritual joy and commitment and support, one can speak, one can say, one can push people, one can push their buttons. It's okay to do that in the world because the ground's prepared for it. And there's a lot of work to be done in making that ground. And sometimes, I th finally, in this, sometimes I think we have to think about this where we live. There is no place that I go to where there is so many views and opinions than there is about New York City. <laughs> it, it, it's in its own league. You know, people speak about living there with acute embarrassment. <laughs> you know, it's like it's the devil's own down there. You know, or some other people speak about it, I just love New York City. And uh, there's this whole spectrum. And everybody seems to be either a supporter or an apologist for the place. <laughs> so what, so it's this, again, this kind of, I was saying last night, it's the self-other syndrome. Other being New York, sin, uh, New York City, self being the relationship to it, and in that, what's what? You know, very easily we view the place and we have all these views and opinions pouring on the place, but oneself and New York are not two separate entities. It's all there together. Sometimes one could take it to extreme and say oneself is New York City. God forbid. <laughs> Sorry, slip. <laughs> so again, when we are making views and forming opinions about whatever it may, may be, how easily that then goes from place to people, from people to person. So the condition view, New York City means people, means people are like this, this is how they are, and then one responds like one is a product easily of the view that one holds. So again, mudita, joy, awareness, appreciation, connectedness, is to dispel and counteract some of that so that we can appreciate for a person for a person. Not clouded and obscured with an image of place. That is obviously wherever we are, wherever we live, a lot of work to be done because that kind of building up of place builds into it a mythology. It reinforces the view. More and more people agree to it, so everybody says, this is how it's like, therefore it can't be changed. Then there's attachment to the intensity of the city or there's the desire to escape from the that place. 
So I think whenever you and I express certain views, repeat them and believe them and make our mythology, can we really question that? Keep the heart open so that we live not trapped in that way. Then this mudita and appreciation and connection can flow much more easily. Similarly about being in IMS and being out of IMS, being in retreat, being out of retreat. Looking to see the way things are just here and now, see where is the awareness? Where is the appreciation? Where is the connectedness? Where is the gratitude? Where is the being together? So in that respect, when we speak in that way, we might say, in the transformation of consciousness, is the transformation of the place. Is the transformation of the ideas about the way things are. Is the transformation of the views of the city, the retreat, the home, the family, the world, Then joy and appreciation in life can flow with uh, effortlessly, easily. May all beings be in touch with life. May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings live with joy. So let's have a couple of quiet minutes together, please.